what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing Welcome, you're listening to Nick Ryan for a special edition of the Hope Not Hate podcast for the heroes of the civil rights movement. We've been speaking to a number of figures for a perspective on the civil rights era and its relevance to today. And I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Pamela Pam Horowitz to join me today for a conversation about the importance of her late husband, Julian Bond, one of the major figures of the civil rights movement and era, and to look at the achievements cemented back there and the challenges we've still got today. I guess it's almost prophetic, uh, we're talking now in the sense that under the current president and the, the, uh, the issues around the recent election that America's divisions have become so publicly divided once again. So I guess the life of, of Julian Bond is gonna be very relevant, it, it, it's, it's stories there. But let me just give you a quick preamble to those listening, most of whom are in the UK. So Pam, I've got this from the internet, so please correct me, Pam, if I'm right or wrong. She, Pam is a native of Minnesota and was one of the first staff lawyers hired by the Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama back in 1974. During her time at the center, she successfully argued a landmark gender discrimination case before the United States Supreme Court and won many other cases in lower federal courts. Pam moved later to Washington DC in 1977 and became a legislative counsel, I think I've got that right, with the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and then entered private practice uh, where she remained for I think the greatest part of her career after that. Pam also worked in partnership with her husband Julian on multiple public, private and academic projects including annual civil rights tours of the South and projects involving the NAACP and the Southern Poverty Law Center. And Pam currently serves on the boards of the, well, I think I'm correct in saying this, Pam, the NAACP Voter Fund and the SPLC. Is that right? That's right. Okay, excellent. And uh, just for our listeners' benefit, um, Julian Bond, I've been reading a, a really interesting book of Julian's collected writings called Race Man, and, and Pam hopefully will later tell us about that new book she's editing as well. Uh, but Julian Bond was a legendary leader of the civil rights movement who co-founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which many people call SNCC for short. Uh, it was one of the main student bodies active during the 1960s in the civil rights movement and engaged in nonviolent protest, carried out voter registration and mobilization works and plenty of other things across the American South during a highly divided time. And Julian went on to found and become the president of the uh, quite famous Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama, uh, uh, an institution I visited uh, before and done work with. And he was also a Georgian congressman and senator and later chairman of the NAACP. So that's a bit of a long preamble. That's probably the longest, longest preamble I've done recently, Pam. So thank you very much for, for waiting for me there. And thank you for joining us today. Thank um, you. Thank you so much for being with us. I was just thinking, you know, for, for those, some of, some of us can remember the struggles of the 1950s and 60s and some of us can't uh, or weren't there. So I guess it's easy to forget how bad things were in America at, at that time, isn't it? And particularly in light of today. Yes, I think that's a good place to start because Julian often talked about that his students uh, would say to him how terrible things were and he would always counsel them that things had been much worse. Uh, and, and he was ever the optimist, which I think you have to be and particularly in difficult times like those we're going through now uh, because you have to have hope because without hope there can't be change. And that, that's clearly what SNCC was all about. And that was what Julian was about really his whole life. 
Yes, I was I was going to say the, the, there's a thread really running through all this. I, I mean, there's racial divisions are, are nothing new. Inequality is nothing new in America, is it? I mean, I guess we could go right back to the earliest days to to look at that. Yes, well, I think, you know, sometimes you take two steps forward and one step back, and sometimes you take one step forward and two steps back, so, <laughs> you know. That, that's not, a very wise way of putting it. Right. So um, just before we we started recording, you mentioned that uh, during the what people call the civil rights era, you, you weren't an activist at that point. Um, Julian was or became one uh, when he was a student in, in Atlanta. But for people who might not know or heard of Julian but on this side of the water, perhaps, you know, who, who was he? How did he come to prominence? Well, he was uh, an activist from the time that he was 20 and a student at Morehouse College in Atlanta and a leader of the Atlanta student movement. And in the spring of 1960, uh, a, an amazing woman named Ella Baker, who at the time worked for Martin Luther King at the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, called a meeting of student leaders from around the country, but primarily the South, to meet at Shaw University in Raleigh. And so that was February 1960. That was, well, it was April, uh, um, it was Easter weekend. And that resulted in the formation of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, although that at the time it was called the temporary. So nobody really knew what SNCC would become and how long it would exist. Uh, but SNCC uh, was arguably uh, the, the most radical of the civil rights organizations, the, ones, the one that worked at the grassroots level in communities in the South, and they didn't just pass through or come through to organize an event and leave, they stayed. Uh, and so they, they ended up, you know, lasting, well, about a, about a decade um, and, and doing pretty amazing things in, the, in that period of time. Uh, and I think in the in the book that you have, Race Man, um, there is there's an excerpt from a, a speech that Julian gave of what we did, which is which is the accomplishments the accomplishments of SNCC. And Julian served as SNCC's communication director, mm -hmm. which meant that he had to be on top of every major civil rights event and every activity that SNCC was engaging in. And it was his job to then keep the national press uh, aware. And the, and the, and the press at, at that time uh, was a, was really, really became an ally of, of the movement in terms of, of getting out the, the, the word and being generally sympathetic. So Julian served in that capacity until he decided to run for the state legislature in Georgia following redistricting, which made it possible. Uh, and, and he, but his, so that really elevated him nationally because uh, before he could be sworn in, SNCC issued an anti-war statement. Uh, following the- Anti-Vietnam. Anti uh, war just for yeah, context. Yes. Yeah. And, and very early and well before Martin Luther King gave his famous speech in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, anti war sentiment had been bubbling up within SNCC. And then there was a uh, demonstration in Tuskegee, Alabama, where a, a SNCC activist who had served in the Navy and lost a kidney and therefore had to use the bathroom more frequently than most, had gone after a voting rights demonstration to a gas station and used a whites only bathroom. And the owner of the gas station shot and killed him, wow. shot him in the back. And that, that did it for SNCC. And they issued this statement, which, uh, 
was radical at the time at best and treasonous in the eyes of many people at worst. And so when Julian having won his election to the Georgia House was supposed to be seated, the House refused to seat him, citing the, the anti-war statement, obviously it, also the fact that he was black, but he came in with uh, the, the first group of black state legislators since Reconstruction, um, but race clearly was a motivating factor. And that, Julian sued, that went to the Supreme Court, that became a cause celeb nationally and uh, really led to, to his becoming a national figure and then to being nominated for vice president at the 1968 Democratic Convention the youngest person to do to have been so nominated by a major party. In fact, he was too young to serve. But that, that all, and the 1968 convention uh, was, was quite the, the event. <laughs> and, and everybody so you, knew that that had, you know, what had happened in term with Julian there. So if, if you know, if, if you were, if, if one was, you, you know, uh, middle, middle-aged or whatever in, in, in America at that time. So we're talking, I think, I'm just reading here, uh, I think Julian was first elected in 1965 to the Georgia right. House Representative. He elected two more times before he could be seated. So he was, while the, the lawsuit was proceeding. So he was actually elected three times before he ever served. Okay, so he's, I think what I want to get across to some of the people listening to this, some of the Brits who may not fully understand, he was part of this sort of trailblazing wave, if that's right, pretty young uh, men and women, uh, African American mainly, you know, at a time when there was violence often still in parts of this, and obviously discrimination in many other areas, jobs, etc, housing. Um, and you mentioned the relevance of making an anti-war statement, anti-Vietnam War statement at that time. So one of the things I read about Julian and his organizing was that he's credited with helping push the boundaries and possibly helping drag, drag move um, some other parts of the civil rights movement a bit further to the left or being a bit more, I guess these things have, have a, uh, it might come across differently in America than the UK, but a more, bit more radical agenda. Would, would I be fair in saying that? Yeah, I think that's that's probably fair. As I said, I think SNCC uh, regarded itself, was happy to wear the mantle of the radical civil rights organization. Um, there are clearly comparisons to Black Lives Matter, um, of which Julian was an admirer. I think he saw himself in Black Lives Matter. And you know, one of the things that I think people sometimes forget or maybe never knew is that at the time it was happening, the civil rights movement in the United States was not popular. It, every poll conducted showed a very small measure of support. Now- really? That's fascinating. Everyone claimed that they not only, who lived then, that they not only supported it, but they participated in it. In fact, it's far more likely that they either paid no attention or they were opposed. And, and so it's interesting, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Black Lives Matter movement, which although its support has, according to polling, has declined a bit since the, the uh, killing in Minneapolis, Still, it is it is more popular than the civil rights movement ever was at while it was you know while it was happening. That that so, is fascinating. That's really so. If so, um, come back to that, my Middle American point that I was putting a bit um, uh, clunkily then. Uh, so so the kind of Middle America, or whatever, would have seen people like Julian and his contemporaries as what, radical, or were they being scared of them? Or they, you mentioned use of the press, so. In, in, we're talking now about the the SNCC days. Um, so they, would would the public have been aware of all these things? I guess they were aware of unrest, perhaps. They were. Well, I think it. You know, it depended. They certainly were aware. It started. Uh, you know, the modern movement generally. 
the starting point is given as the Montgomery bus boycott. And that of course was in the fifties. And that, and that elevated Martin Luther King to his position as a, as a national figure and, and the, the leader of the civil rights movement and the minds of most Americans. Um, and they didn't support him either. <laughs> it wasn't just, it wasn't right. just, it. Uh, and then uh, you have the, you know, major events taking place. Uh, the, the World War II was certainly a catalyst for all of it because uh, black soldiers, even though they served in a segregated army, uh, fought against fascism. And there was the, the, the double V during, during World War II against fascism at, at abroad and racism at home. And mm -hmm. they, had, it, they had seen the black people being treated better in other countries and other armies than they were in the United States. And so that formed kind of a cadre of activists who are veterans from the war. Mm -hmm. Then you have the, the, the Montgomery bus boycott, which was a, a, a fabulously successful and amazing accomplishment, you know, and lasted, the boycott lasted a, a whole year. So this is the mid fifties, isn't it? The Montgomery and bus Mon boycott. Montgomery, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. And, um, Oh, let's see the date. the The date of the of the Montgomery bus bus boycott. Yes, is like the fifty five. Is December fifty five? Is that sixty? Right? Well, sixty five. Sixty five is the is the Salmon of Montgomery March. Right. Right. And, and you know, so that was. But then, but you had um, the the March on Washington. I mean, you had, you had many events that were national in scope and certainly that people, people were aware and, and considered that to be the movement. Then you had lots of, of smaller activities happening across in, in small towns across the South. So where did Julian fit in then into, and, and the movements he was engaging with uh, sort of up until his sort of maybe his first term in in the uh, in the in the Georgia House, he, he wasn't considered in the mainstream of these movements. So Martin Luther King uh, and and some other leaders would have been seen front and center. Is that right? And then yes, well I think yes. And King formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference following the Montgomery the the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, but that that was led. Ex almost exclusively by black male ministers. Okay. Uh, and so, and initially I mentioned Ella Baker who called this student meeting. She was working for Martin Luther King, but she uh, being ahead of her time and not afraid to take on, you know, the powers that be uh, counseled the students that they needed their own organization. And that was key to the founding of SNCC, that they should not, not become a part of the SCLC or any other existing organization. The NAACP, of course, was the premier black organization having been founded in 1909. But the NAACP had, uh, you know, its own limitations, uh, certainly not a radical organization. And, and initially when the movement really got started was opposed to direct action. Um, okay. And so that kind of left them by the wayside. So, so Julian was a key member of the, the student movement of the civil rights movement. And what did what you, you you alluded to it, and I briefly touched on it. But what, what kind of things did SNCC do? They well, the the I guess they had a had a primary focus. It would have been registering voters, and that was extremely dangerous. Uh, you know, even though as I alluded to earlier, the SNCC volunteers stayed in these towns for a long time. 
that wasn't the same as living in them. And people literally were killed for registering to vote, um, killed for, uh, for housing or uh, volunteers from SNCC. I mean, they were, they were, to my mind, the true heroes of the movement um, because, because they literally risked life and limb. Um, and so SNCC was, was doing some things to, to try to elevate the economic situation, but the, the primary focus was on voting. They formed the Mississippi Freedom uh, Democratic Party. Uh, and that was the group that went to the, the 64 Democratic Convention and tried to, tried to get seated. Um, and, and then there was a, uh, when Julian decided to, to run for the Georgia House, that was done really kind of as a group decision. He, wouldn't, he probably wouldn't have done it if SNCC had not approved, but there was opposition in SNCC to, you know, working within the system as opposed to kind of trying, you know, trying to totally change the system from the mm -hmm. outside. And, and uh, that, so that led to a lot of political, you know, political activity uh, on, on the part of SNCC people too. And they were, they were the main, the main volunteers in Julian's campaigns, which as I say, numbered <laughs> three just to get seated once. Yeah, yeah. So would, would SNCC and, and Julian then have been pioneers of, of community organizing techniques and mm -hmm. strategies or, or were they building on uh, models used yeah, elsewhere? That, that, it definitely, that's a good way to put it. They, you know, the Freedom Summer is a, was something that most people remember and that, that brought white volunteers. Um, and of course that was controversial within and without the organization. But the truth of the matter was that Black people were getting killed and nobody was paying any attention. Uh, if, if white people got killed, that was a whole different matter. And- uh, What was the Freedom Summer? Sorry to interrupt you. I, I think I know what it is, but just for people listening. Freedom, people were... Freedom Summer was, was bringing uh, volunteers, primarily white volunteers from colleges across the United States, although the bulk of them came from the Northeast and the East, mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to Mississippi for the summer of 1963 or four. 64. Uh, so I'm just reading off the internet as I'm speaking to you. Yeah, but 64. Yeah. And, and, and that was, uh, and of course, they, they came, that was when uh, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney were were kidnapped and and murdered. Um, so the, there was real there was real danger. That was also a you know a fear of those who organized Freedom Summer, but uh, but that brought a lot of press attention. They formed Freedom Schools again in these small cities across the South where education. Uh, to the extent that it existed at all, was inferior, and probably were able to to teach them as much in one summer as they had learned in years in the in the inferior education system. And then all the the people who came as volunteers went back to uh, their homes and agitated for things to be better there. You know, the the, the civil rights movement, as we think of it, was primarily a, a southern movement, but racism was not a southern problem mm. alone. And and you'll remember that that uh, King was killed in Memphis um, over a, a, a strike, and then planning to go to Chicago uh, and holding the Poor People's March in Washington, and and branching out to to northern cities where. Uh, racism also existed just in sometimes in different forms. Yeah. Well, do you know what you, you, you reminded me of something there that I've been looking at recently is, is the issue of voter suppression. So before we come back to Julian himself, 
voter suppression seems to have a fairly long and inglorious history in the in the US. Uh, it's obviously been thrown into incredibly sharp relief, hasn't it, with um, with Donald Trump's comments, you know, pre the election, during, post. Um, uh, uh, but also what happened in Georgia, actually, I was reading um, this summer in some of the around the primaries, I think, um, some people complaining in some neighborhoods, which happened to be African-American predominantly, there were like long queues and nobody hands out bottles of water and there's no seats, whatever. And, and in other areas, which may be more affluent and or whiter, they, uh, you know, it's a different, a different story. So you that was one there. Of the amazing things about this, this election, um, the, the turnout and, and there is certainly anecdotal evidence and I don't know if they'll ever be able to prove that voter suppression actually is an incentive for people to vote. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, people were saying if, if they if that anxious to stop you from voting, they must think that your vote is pretty powerful. Uh, and so I think the turnout in this last election uh, will, will help perhaps tamp down on voter suppression because it's not working. Well, that's Although, interesting. It, you know, it's it certainly. I mean, it's it's a horrible thing. It makes it more difficult. But I but I do think that it it helped. I think we have we've too often taken the vote for granted in in this country, um, and, and even even among some black people whose whose ancestors literally died for the right to vote. Um, and this time it was not taken for granted and people, people understood how precious and, and you know, what, what happened, the, the Voting Rights Act in 1965 was, was probably the, the, the most important thing to come out of the, the movement other than the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And, um, and that changed everything, in, particularly in, in the South. Um, it's where pretty shocking to read how, yeah, how difficult it was for some people to vote uh, African-American women or, or even a bit further back, I was reading about grandfather laws, all sorts of strange things where what, you know, what, what illiterate white people, this is going back a long way now, but I think right. time of the First World War, and what, what an illiterate white person in some, in one, in one state that, name eludes me now, but could vote if their grandparent, grandfather had been registered to vote by 1867 or something, yeah. and, but yeah. not, a, not an equivalent African-American. So whole, yeah, disenfranchisement. Poll taxes were a big issue in the South. And of course that reared its ugly head in this past election because Florida uh, had passed an amendment to their constitution to reenfranchise felons who had lost their right to vote by virtue oh, yes. of a felony. And then they, when that passed, um, they then uh, said that everybody, before you could vote, you had to pay off your court fees, which were in, in some cases, thousands of dollars and really reminiscent of a, of a poll tax. So, you know, these things. You can draw a line, can't you? You can draw a line and, and I guess, People like Julian and, and his colleagues and others were pushing at those boundaries. And, yeah. and, and it seems to me one needs to keep pushing because, again, you know, looking at current well, events, there's clearly a well, pushback. What happened in the, you know, in the United States was the, the, this uh, it's most important piece of the civil rights legacy was uh, a, a part of it was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Um, and that, that really opened the doors to all of these vote, the mod, these recent modern suppression, uh, voter suppression efforts. Um, and so we still, co Congress could pass a new law, but they have not because of our excessive partisanship and the, the, racism of one of the parties and so that's been stalemated in the so in, six, in 65 there was the vote you mentioned the voting rights act was was passed and effectively and i'm not a lawyer but uh you are that that enfranchised everyone in theory 
Uh, is that right? So I mean, it, it knocked it knocked down the barriers to to voting. Um, it applied in only in certain states, but they were the states that had been uh, most restrictive. So so yes, that's a, that's a way of putting it. In, it. It's its most important provision was preclearance, which to make changes to voting, uh, even in terms of where a precinct was going to be located. You had to get preclearance um, from the Justice Department or a, a federal court, and uh, that is the the part that the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional, and that's that's uh, that's what fell, and that kind of destroyed uh, the you're impact. You're talking about a 2013 decision, yeah, wasn't it? Right. By the Out of, yes. Right, right. So, um, because again, for people listening, say in the UK, uh, as I understand it, so individual states in the US set uh, set their own laws around you know voter, voter registration, don't they? So, and who, who's eligible, who isn't? You mentioned Florida, and I know there's a few other states have some what I would consider quite contentious yes. laws. Uh, uh, you know, if you've been a felon, uh, etc. So I think I think I read the eight states still permanently disbar people convicted of felon felony offenses from voting. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that sounds right. There are, uh, most states uh, bar them at least for some period of time. And so if you say there are eight that permanently, dis permanently disenfranchise that, you know, that sounds about right. And even in states that, that allow Reenfranchisement after a certain period of time, you often have to go through a laborious process with the governor's office. It's not automatic. Okay. Uh, so yes, it's a it's a problem. So um, if we can come back to Julian now, um, so how did you two meet? By the way, he he gave a speech at my alma mater, which was McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, and, and when was this? This was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't uh, sort of, that's, is that the first time you saw him? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, well, we actually met that, you know, at, I, he was, he, we had, a, we had a friend in common, it turned out, my, a professor, a man who had been my professor and who had taught in Atlanta and Julian knew him, so. Okay, we, so you you were you you were uh, st still a st are you saying you were a student at this time or a graduate student? No, I had graduated. Okay, so because uh, again, I, I I said in my preamble that you two um, so you've known each other a long time and you've you, you've done work together, but just again to bring the, our listeners up to speed. So after his um, student activism, as you mentioned, Julian you know, this sort of pretty long stint really um, in the in Georgia politics uh, I'm reading here. So you said three three times he was elected to the House of Representatives, was it? And, and then he was yes. in the Senate, Georgia he, Senate? And I think maybe maybe a few more. He served 20 years altogether in the, between the House and the, the Georgia House and the Georgia Senate. Okay, and then you, you both became involved with the Southern Poverty Law Center. So I said in, uh, so you were a, a, a lawyer for the for the right. The, right. The, he was the first president. Okay. Of, and so that was uh, 1971, and and I and I became the I guess the first the second staff lawyer hired, um, and so I so I was at the center when there were only three of us, and now there are three lawyers now there are uh you know hundreds <laughs> and it's a it's a it's a far less humble organization and even <laughs> doing you know pretty important work so it must have been um i mean for, for you as well in terms of your career it must have been pr pretty exciting times That's i've been to the building there and uh, a few years ago and yeah it, it, it puts our modest organizations <laughs> somewhat in the shadow by, yeah. by comparison, but has done some pretty amazing work over the years 
so so you you were there Judy was there uh, uh, as the president um and so I mean what what happened to what, what happened to his 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 life and career then so he he progressed through Georgian um, politics and yes he served he served 20 years in the in the Georgia legislature and then he became an academic okay uh and so he taught at at the beginning, it was, he wasn't sure that he was going to really do that as a second career. And so it was kind of have syllabus will travel. And he taught at different places, Harvard twice, Williams, uh, the University of Pennsylvania. But then he landed at the University of Virginia uh, and taught there for more than 20 years. So and what, was his, what was his speciality? What, 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 what sort of things did he, he, he the, teach? The history, he was in the history, taught the history of the civil rights movement. Um, okay. he, he always said they wouldn't let him teach physics. <laughs> right. So, so that, the book, if I can right. put a plug in for- Oh, please do, yeah. Our book, I, well, I, I never say I'm, I'm writing a book because Julian wrote it. Um, there is a woman named Jean Theo Harris, who is a professor at Brooklyn College and who wrote the definitive biography of Rosa Parks called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. And so she was Julian's student and then TA at Harvard. So we've known Jean for a long time. Um, she hoped to do this book with Julian and then had to settle for me. And so we, we are, we are the beneficiaries of Julian having written out his, his lectures for his course on the history of the civil rights movement. And that is what we have edited. And so the book, what's the book's title again? Julian Bond's Time to Teach. And it's coming out in January uh, from Beacon Press. So it, I'm, it, it's exciting because it, it turns out that, uh, the timing really couldn't be better in, in terms of the centrality of race again in uh, the American discussion. And, and that includes a, a lot of activity among schools uh, because one of, one of the problems I think that we have when it comes to race is just ignorance. And the Southern Poverty Law Center did a survey a, a few years ago of, of high schools, and they they the the only state in the country that taught the civil rights movement as a regular matter in their high schools was Mississippi. Really, and That's, so it's not it's not mandatory. In no curricula. No, and it's often. Wow. It, it, we, Julian found in talking to his students that it's often, even in survey courses of American history, they don't get that far. They kind of end with World War II, maybe. And I, because I think people also didn't realize just how restrictive race laws were. What, you know, Jim Crow actually comes from England. You know, the oh. Jim Crow was a, was apparently a character in, in, English uh, productions and and adopt uh, adapted to the calling restrictive laws in the United States Jim Crow laws, mm -hmm. and they they meant they didn't just mean that black and white kids couldn't go to school together. Black and white adults couldn't play checkers together. It was illegal. Yeah, people forget, don't they? And that's not, it's within living memory that this occurred. And, and also, I mean, you know, we would, we would never go back to that. There are, there are all kinds, of, Julian's students used to say, like when he taught the Montgomery bus boycott, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the back of the bus. Well, they didn't appreciate that if you didn't go to the back of the bus, you literally could be killed. And, you know, and, and, and arrested and people were. It's incredibly important, isn't it? His, his teaching of history and, and school. I'm glad you raised that. Actually, that the role of schools and the education system 
Yeah, I know this, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Centre has a, a teaching tolerance program yeah. um, for a long time, which is 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 great. But that's it's so important, isn't it? Um, and politicians always like to interfere every time they get elected in in these matters as well. I'm sure teachers and educators get fed up. Yes, yes, with that. yes. Um, but that that's so important. Do, do you find your do, do you visit yourself? Do you go to many schools or education facilities to to talk or talk about Julian's life and work? You know, some and we and we certainly obviously. The, the, the downside of the book coming out now is that we can't do, you know, any kind of book events in person, but we have several Zoom events scheduled and, and we hope that um, the, the book will be used as, we don't want it to be limited to a, an academic setting, but we certainly hope that it, it lands there um, and it's, you know, it's, there are chapters, you don't, you, you don't have to teach the, uh, the whole history or, or use it just for a course, you can use it, you can dip into it, like you can with race man. Um, so, and, and I don't think there's anything quite like it out there. Um, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to, to seeing it. I'll be delighted to, uh, to, to attempt to review uh, oh, good. It, good. You know, it'd be really, 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 really. Don't worry, I'll buy a copy. You don't have to send one. Very well, the publication. <laughs> and I, I think places like California, I think, has already voted to to mandate the teaching of civil rights in their state college system. So, you know, things things like that will will be not. You know, it's nice for the book, but it's more important for the country. That's going to. I think that's going to matter if we. I, if we I was going to say uh, for, for, on that sort of point. I don't mean this to sound sort of too trite, but if Judy was still with us today, and I'm, I'm sorry he isn't, but if he was, um, how, how do you think? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry about that. But how how do you think he would have? You know, what would his take have been? Or do, do you think he would have been surprised by how events have panned out, or or rather, you know, maybe horrified but not surprised? Yeah, probably more. More the latter, although I think all of, all of us have been a bit surprised. Uh, you know, we, we understood where the Republican Party has been going really since Nixon's Southern strategy. So in some ways, this is a logical road for them to have traveled. Um, and Southern on, strategy, by the way, sorry to interrupt you, is, is an important point. I should have thought of it. Um, uh, we, we had a piece by a writer named Angie Maxwell recently who talks about the long Southern strategy and yeah, from the days of Nixon and the Republican Party looking to uh, shore up its sort of its support, wasn't it? And yes, and then, and then Ronald Reagan notoriously giving his opening speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which was where Schorner and Cheney were murdered. So the, the, the dog whistles have been getting louder and louder and now they've really... Yeah, so it's not new, is it? It's not just Trump. I mean, Trump perhaps is the, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, well, I was gonna say Zenith, but that sounds like, anyway, he's the crux of, of this all coming together, but it's... In some ways, the symptom, not the cause. Yeah. And, the, and yeah. the fact that the entire party has gone along with him tells you, you know, all you need to know about the party. So I think I, I've said from the beginning, um, Ju Julian, you know, was uh, alive when the the primaries, the Republican primaries, were beginning and the debates um, for 2016, and and never never took Trump seriously as a or, or thought that he was going to get the nomination at that point. Julian died in August. Um, of 2015, um, but from the time that that Trump was elected, and people have asked me, you know, what would Julian say? I I have said he would say, "Don't agonize, organize." Mm. Uh, and so, I think he, you know, he would have been uh, somewhat. He would have been appalled, but not not discouraged to the point of abandoning uh, 
cope. Mm. I think that's that. It's it's good to to hear that. It's important to hear that. One one of the things I was impressed by was was just hearing from a number of sources really talking about how Julian also you know, the point I mentioned a bit earlier about how he broadened the base of support. So I heard he, he was a. You mentioned BLM, Black Lives Matter, the young, the importance of the young people, uh, even the LGBTQ plus. Uh, it was. It was probably rights, it was the, the first national uh, black leader in in the United States to come out in support of gay rights generally and marriage equality specifically, and I think um, probably deserves credit for for certainly the NAACP coming out in support of marriage equality, which, which polling showed was even more important than Obama coming out in its favor in terms of what black people thought about gay marriage. And you know now, even though with the current composition of our Supreme Court, you worry a little bit, um, but again, there you you're just there are things that have happened with the gay population, and you're never gonna that you're never gonna abandon, and you're never gonna go back to what it was. So, yes, yeah, so, but it's important again, just historically, to remember. It, 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 you can't take anything quite for granted, can you? In, in these days, and actually, some of these advancements, it wasn't that long ago. No, that there no. were far more regressive laws in certain areas, and also, obviously, of course, attitudes. Um, yes, as yes. well, and it's all too easy to take regressive steps. Um, so, if, we, if if we're talking there, you know, the, the, the kind of things Julian helped uh, trailblaze, really. I mean, how, how do you view his legacy? I mean, you, you you clearly must be very interested in his legacy, not just because you were his partner, but you also professionally you're working on his book, his writings, and stuff. So, what, how do you place those into into the context of today and also of the past? Well, I think that he he was the, the the book that you've mentioned that you're reading that's out now, which is his collected writings. Uh, I think he he is called Race Man um, because that's what he how he liked to think of himself that he was a race man in the in the manner of W. E. B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass, uh, someone who devoted. Uh, their their energies and abilities to the betterment of the race, uh, and that was Julian's life. It was it was it was a lifetime of doing that, not just in and out or having done it and moved on. Whatever whatever he was doing, that was the thread. And uh, you know, I I said earlier that after his political career. The, the second career was was academia, but that's also when uh, concurrently he was the chair of the NAACP. And the NAACP remains the premier uh, black organization in the country and, and as such is extremely important. And he brought them along uh, in terms of gay rights and uh, so it was, it was a continuum. He was proud of the fact that SNCC really influenced the women's movement, the anti-war movement, you know? So in one way or another, he was really a part of, of all the important social movements of his time. Yes, he, I mean, uh, he, he, well, he clearly was incredibly influential. And very, I, I guess a very driven man. Really, I mean, what was his personality like? I, I should have asked you that earlier, really. But what, what, what was he like as a person? He was, uh, well, it's. <laughs> Sorry if I've asked you a difficult question. He was. He was. Uh, I, I think I say in my introduction it to to the race man book, um, you know, that he he had an incredible intellect. Um, he was funny. He had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, he always said that when he died, he wanted a bench and he wanted it to say race man on one side and easily amused on the other. 
<laughs> I think you cannot devote your life to serious work without having a sense of humor because otherwise it just, you just become so angry that you're, it, you know, you're paralyzed by it. Um, so he was, he was, he was great to be with. He was always, always calm, even though there was clearly, he was motivated by anger, but he never, he never let it overtake him. Um, and, uh, you know, he did, he did a lot of things. Uh, he was in movies. He was, a, he was the, the narrator of his time. He narrated uh, the, the quintessential documentary of the civil rights movement called Eyes on the Prize. He hosted oh, yes. Saturday Night Live, our popular and still ongoing. You yeah. know, <laughs> I've been watching some of their recent efforts. <laughs> so there, you know, he was, he was, he was a, uh, he certainly, he was a public intellectual, definitely. Yeah, he, he, uh, I think we, we need to, uh, we, we need to make more of, of, of men and also the women as well, like him who were in the movement and, and remember, mm -hmm. remember them, keep, keep, the, keep their memory alive. So your new book so certainly sounds like a very important part of it. Can you remind us again what, what it's called and when it will be out? Yes, Julian Bond's Time to Teach, published by Beacon Press, coming out January 12th. That's fantastic. I urge everyone listening to this to please go and buy that book and, and read Pam's work about Julian. Thank, Pam, you, for thank you. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I probably have missed out 99% of Julian's life and, and, your, and your own as well. If there's anything you'd like to leave us with before we, uh, before we finish, please, please let me know. Well, I thank you for the opportunity. I, I think I, I already said this to you. I'm not sure it was when we were uh, actually doing the, the interview that uh, I think that the thing that Julian would want us to come away with is uh, never abandon hope because without, without hope, there can't be change. And, and change is certainly necessary in whatever decade we're operating in. Yes, the, the very well, wise words. I mean, almost should be without saying, but yeah, they, I guess they do need to be said again. Pam, Pam Horowitz, thank you so much. And I'm really thank looking you. forward to reading your book. That was Pam Horowitz there, uh, wife of the late Julian Bond. Thank you for speaking to Hope Not Hate.